One of the most penetrating sentences in the Bible is found in Job from his own lips when he says in Job 13 15, though he slay me, still I will hope in him. Last week was the last Sunday of the year, and I preached a sermon that borrowed heavily from J.C. Ryle's little paper called, Are You Ready? Ryle's paper is an encouragement to prepare for the new year, but not quite like most people prepare for the new year in making New Year's resolutions. It's not a typical New Year's resolution encouragement. And if you want to get the PDF of that, again, it is online and easily accessible for download. Most New Year's resolutions, as you are well aware, and probably with which you're experienced with, have to do with self-improvement. They're making changes over which things you have control. For example, losing weight, reading more, getting in shape, starting a hobby, quitting a bad habit. Usually people look at the new year and say, these are things that I want to change. And inherent in that commitment is that I have the power to change them. Certainly nothing wrong with making such efforts. We should have New Year's resolutions and New Day's resolutions for for that matter. But this is looking at the new year and doing what we think is under our control. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Ryle, however, takes a different approach to getting ready for the new year. Instead of looking at what we have control over, Ryle says your best way to prepare for a new year is to consider those things over which you do not have control. And he asks five questions. This is review. Are you ready for sickness? What if you get sick this year? What if you have a debilitating disease this year or a stroke or cancer or a broken bone? He says, secondly, are you ready for affliction? Do you have a theology that will sustain the trials that are undoubtedly going to come into your life? Third, he asked, are you ready for bereavements? Are you ready to let go of loved ones, friends and relatives Because the wages of sin is death and everyone is going to have to experience those bereavements. Fourth, he says, are you ready for your own death? Do you have a theology for and are you prepared for the last heartbeat, for the great day? And then he says, fifthly, are you ready for the coming of Christ? Is that something we look forward to? Is that something we would dread? John says not to shrink back in shame at his appearing. And he says, if you ask these questions, these are things over which we have no control, sickness, affliction, bereavement, death, the coming of Christ. But the best way to prepare for a new year is to be ready for these things. Said another way, to have our perspective on fire with good biblical theology and to be prepared. Well, I want to confess to you, when I preached that seven days ago, I had no idea what was about to happen in the next 48 to 72 hours. As I told you in our prayer time earlier, our dear friend Mike Swiston suffered that massive stroke on New Year's night, currently in the ICU under a, an induced coma and hoping for the mitigation of the swelling in, in his brain. Encouraging progress we see by God's grace and his providence and kindness. 
And it's slow, but it's going the right direction, and we continue to pray for him. And then early on January 3rd, which was my birthday, I was able to go over and be with Damon and Debbie Runnels. As you know, we told you a few weeks ago to pray for them because it was confirmed that little JC, their, their baby, that Debbie was carrying had trisomy 13, which is a serious and life-threatening genetic disorder. She was born just before 3 a.m. I was able to go and be with them at their request for the entirety of her life. The Lord took her home to be with him just after, just before 6.30. God answers so many prayers in those three hours. I, Damon and Debbie and I were just rehearsing the ways that God answered prayer. Um, she passed so peacefully. In fact, Debbie didn't even know at first that she had gone to be with Jesus. What I've seen this week is something priceless. I've seen these families who had theology and perspective that was prepared for these trials. In each of these situations, I went as a friend and pastor to hopefully provide encouragement and received far more than I left. It's an amazing thing to see theology alive and real and active and working and comforting. But they also, these events made, made me look in the, in the mirror of God's word and to look at my own theology. Um, I would be less than honest if I didn't tell you this, this has been a hard week for me as a, as a pastor and as a friend. Specifically, I began to say, as you would, what about me? What about my life? What am I, how prepared am I to happen, to, to be ready for what would happen in God's providence? I want to share with you this morning just the overflow of what I, I studied this week. It's probably as much of a testimony of a study as it is a sermon itself. Specifically, I want to spend a few moments thinking about finding God in the midst of loss. Finding God when we lose things. There's the loss of things. When you experience such loss that you seem to have little hope, it could be your own health, it could be the sickness of a loved one, it could be the loss of one you love. What does it mean to experience loss theologically? We, I don't know how many times we, we keep talking about the fact that if you, everyone has a theology. Your theology is biblically informed and well preparing you and I for the coming trials. Remember James said, be, be ready for them because it's not if they come, it's when they come. And I think part of our job with each other as the body of Christ here at Mission Road is to prepare and sustain each other through trials. And that's all because we know and believe the good theology that God has given us in his word that's not for theory and not for speculation, but for ownership and for living and for comfort and for, for peace. So open your Bibles to familiar text in the book of Job. Job chapter one. It's impossible to think about God and processing through loss without looking at our friend Job 
who suffered terrible loss and suffered compounded loss in a very short period of time. I want to remember this story in the first two chapters, and we're just going to work through that very quickly, remind you of that, and then I want to draw some conclusions theologically that will help us, not only in our aid of these these friends and family who are struggling and suffering today in our body, but also those who may not may not have told anyone you're struggling. Listen, I am very aware that there are burdens and pains and broken hearts and anxieties and fears in so many people, in so many categories. And in some senses, you've served some by keeping a stiff upper lip and not saying anything. And, and yet I think we would all be better served to know what's going on and to help one another. Let's jump in. I just want to familiarize you with the story of Job that I'm sure you understand. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And this next phrase sets up the whole book. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. This sets up the classic question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because some bad things are about to be an avalanche on Job. And the writer very clearly sets up the whole book by saying, this man was righteous. He was a repenter. He had faith in God. You'll see his theology was intact, but that did not exempt him from the trials of living in a broken world. Verse two, seven sons, three daughters were born to him. Job had 10 children, 10 children. Look at his wealth. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep. Scholars tell us, that the, tell us that the descriptions in this verse indicate that Job was not a wealthy man, but perhaps the wealthiest man in that area. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. Just imagine these herds. 500 female donkeys and very many servants. The female donkeys are significant because those could produce others. There was an investment That man was the greatest of all men of the East. No one was richer or more wealthy or more mighty than Job. Now we get a look into the family album. His sons, verse four, used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one, I love this phrase, on his day. Hebrew scholars tell us that on his day means likely on his birthday. This was a family much like ours. When it was their birthday, they would all go, the family would gather at their house and have a party, have a feast. They would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. We've also also told by scholars that says the, the three sisters were invited, doesn't mention their husbands, which likely means that they were teens who were still living at home with Mr. and Mrs. Job. Verse five, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, they spent days on these parties. Job would send and consecrate them. Literally send for them. Gather them around. Rising early in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. That's 10 plus families, I'm sure. 
Because he said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God. Don't be too put off by this word cursed. It's going to be a theme in the first two chapters. Curse God means to dismiss God, to doubt God. Doesn't mean just to throw curses at God. He says, maybe they've done that. They've been feasting. Maybe they got a little bit too much into the party atmosphere and dismissed God. So we'd offer sacrifices for them. This means that he was careful that if any of his kids had lost perspective of God and the things that they understood, he would bring them back and set their compass to God. Now, the writer changes scenes. We've just looked at these parties, these birthday parties, these celebrations. And now we change the scene from Job's neighborhood to the throne room of heaven. Verse six, now there was a day when the sons of God, that's code for angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. I love this footnote. And the accuser and Satan also came among them. There's so much in these first two chapters to learn about Satanology, Satan and the theology of, of what, who Satan is, his limitations, his, his powers and his submission to authority. This is interesting to me. Satan has to show up, according to this text, and give an account to God. Remember, Satan is only an angel. We have to be careful not to think of Satan as the bad God and God as the good God. Satan's an angel. He's only an angel. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's what we call a localized deity. He can only be one place at one time. So when you say, I'm sure Satan is afflicting me, he may be sending his minions to afflict you, but I don't know if any of us rank in his ministry. He's probably in higher government context trying to affect the world. He shows up to give an account to God. Just think about that. He has to show up and give a report for what he's doing in the world to God. And the Lord initiates the conversation. The Lord said to Satan, where'd you come from? From where did you come? Give me a report. Satan answered the Lord from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan... The Lord said to Satan, you thought about, you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now we find out that Job doesn't only have a great reputation on earth, he has a great reputation in heaven. Isn't that something we would all long for? But don't miss the fact that all that's about to transpire between Satan and Job was initiated by God. God brings Job to Satan's attention, not vice versa. 
Then Satan answered the Lord. He says, actually, I've seen Job. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him, circled him around his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He says, we, I, I have seen Job and you have blessed him, which means you put kind of a hedge around him of protecting him from harm and from financial ruin. I don't think it's a stretch to think that if we walk uprightly as Job did, God blesses that effort. Verse 11 is the sting, but Satan speaking to God, put forth your hand and touch all that he has. Who's the agent in that verse? God or Satan? Who is it? God. Put forth your hand. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now we are transported from heaven back to the parties. You see what the writer did there? He pulled back the curtain and showed us what's happening in heaven. Listen, please don't miss this. Job did not know at the time of this conversation between Satan and God. The writer tells us, but just like Abraham who was called to sacrifice his son as a test, he didn't know he was being tested. Job doesn't know that this conversation has taken place. The Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has, verse 12, is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. That will come in chapter two, by the way. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. You know, I think often of my charismatic friends who misguidedly try to bind, which means tie up Satan. And I often wonder in this context, had a charismatic friend showed up when the trials of Job had happened and said, began to bind Satan, if he had materialized and said, actually, God sent me to do this. We always have to ask, who is sovereign in our theology? Is it God or is it? He said, the devil. Verse 13, transfer scenes back to earth. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking, they go to their oldest brother's house, indicates that it's likely the birthday of their oldest brother. All that's about to happen, by the way, happens in a single day. Four messengers are now going to run toward Job and his house. Verse 14, a messenger came to Job. That's number one, the first messenger. And he says to Job, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked, stole them, they took them, and they slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, in order to understand the gravity of this scene, you have to put yourself in Job's field or in Job's living room. Because these messengers, if he was outside, he would have seen all four of them coming, likely from different directions, running at their fastest speed toward him at the same time, only barely beating one another. How do we know that? 
Because as he was giving this report, the second messenger comes in, number two, in verse 16, messenger number two. While the first messenger, while he was still speaking, he hadn't even finished giving his report of the loss of all this financial potential and his friends being killed. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, messenger number three, while the second messenger was still speaking. Another came also and said, the Chaldeans, they formed three bands. They made a raid on the camels, took them, slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you Imagine the scene. They, they're talking over each other. They can't even finish the report before another says, yeah, but not only that, let me tell you what else happened. And then the trump card comes in verse 18. While the third, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters, and I think Job's heart must have melted at those words. There's this implied, not only have you heard these other three reports, not only this, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a massive, a great wind came from across the wilderness struck the four corners of the house. This is the description, and we know this well, living in the Midwest of a tornado. Came across the plain, they saw it coming. It also hit the four corners of the house. The only thing that could hit the four corners of a house is a tornadic event in which there was a spiral of the wind. There's a prevailing wind, typically out of the north and west for us, but there's a prevailing wind. A wind doesn't hit the four corners unless it's spiraling. Likely a tornado hits the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. If you do the math... You measure the reports. In just a few minutes, Job experienced this much loss. Climaxing in your 10 children are dead. Few people have experienced this much loss all at once. And there's more to come. What's the response? I want to ask you to cling to verse 20, to memorize verse 20, to know verse 20, to own verse 20. He arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That's the equivalent of us burying our face in a pillow and saying, oh no. And he fell to the ground and, and he worshiped. His response was not to complain. His response was not to run. 
His response was not to hide or to withdraw. His reflex in his soul was to worship God. In his darkest moment, his reflex was to worship God. What kind of theological truth and perspective must have fed into Job's life and mind for him to have this kind of response? We find out a little bit of that theology in verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb. I I didn't come into this world with anything. And naked I will return. I'm not gonna take anything with me. And here's his theology. The The Lord gave He gave my children, he gave my wealth, he gave my friends. And the Lord has taken away, not the devil, not circumstances, not fate, the Lord. The Lord has taken away. And his response, blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin And now we find the temptation that the writer wants us to know he avoided. He did not blame God. There's a real sense in which every form of human complaint is a stiff arm against God's providence. Every complaint is us saying, God, you missed it. Every complaint is in some sense us saying, if I had been in control, things would have gone differently or better. I wish there wasn't a verse, a chapter division between one and two. There's a Hebrew conjunction at the beginning that links it. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came, remember going back to heaven now, verse, chapter two, verse one. Back to a scene in heaven when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? What's your report? Then Satan said the, uh, the same thing he said earlier, roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him. Does this sound familiar? Do, do you think that the copier made a mistake here? A blameless, an upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. This is after Job's losses, and he still is said to be this way from the mouth of God. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Do you see the providence there? I think we learn from this. God is doing far more tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of things in our struggles and in our losses that, that we don't understand in the moment. Satan answered in verse four, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, you haven't really afflicted him yet. So much for losing his wealth and his friends and his children. That's not the deepest thing you can do to hurt him. 
Put forth your hand now. Again, this is God's hand, not Satan's. He's asking for God to do this. Don't miss the providential hand of God. Put forth your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh, and then he will curse you to your face. And in an unexpected answer, verse six, the Lord says to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. We find out later in the musings of Job, Job would have far preferred preferred to have his life taken. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, verse seven, smote, afflicted Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot and to the crown of his head. Medical theologians, and I love that term, people who can look at theology with, uh, look at medicine with a theological eye, look at this and they say the best physical description of what's happening to Job is the most extreme case of shingles possible. These were boils that would swell into abscesses and, and need to be relieved. How do we know that? Verse eight says, he took a piece of pottery, a sharp piece of broken pottery, a potsherd, and he scraped himself while he was sitting among the ashes. I don't want to be graphic here. He was scraping infection and the result of abscesses off his body just to find relief. What about his wife? When we read verse nine, please don't do as some trite people do and be so quick to judge Job's wife. She said, you should blame God or curse God and die. You're still holding fast your integrity. Even she acknowledged that he was still, he was still in line with trusting his God. And she said, why do you do this? Blame God or curse God and, and die. This is a woman who's just lost 10 children. This is a woman who's watching her husband rot. I heard one preacher, I was just grieved to hear him say, maybe the better thing was if Job had lost his wife with such theology. I think we understand. We don't justify, but we can identify with her, can't you? What's his response? He says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. And then this theology loud and clear, shall we indeed accept good from God? We're happy to do that, but not accept adversity. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. The rest of the chapter, his three friends come. They see him from a distance. They couldn't even recognize him. He was so diseased for a week. In verse 13, they sit with him and they can't even say anything. They just sit there. Now from this, I want to back up and look at this as a whole and give you very quickly and very succinctly six lessons about loss from God's dealings with Job. These are lessons that I've preached to my own heart this week. 
These are lessons that have found deep root in my soul that I want to find deep root in my experience. Six lessons about loss from God's dealings with Job. The first is this, God and the loss of finances. God and the loss of finances. Job loses in just a few moments all of his finances, all of his means of money making. He lost his job, in other words. And yet, that did not dislodge his confidence and his hope in God. God gave, God took away, I will still put my hope and confidence in God. Said another way, the circumstances weren't powerful enough to make him question his theology. His theology was powerful enough to make him ask the right questions about his circumstances. Never forget that God is completely aware of and involved with your financial condition. No one has ever lost wealth. No one has ever lost money. No one has ever lost a job where God turned to the, el- to the, to the angels, elbowed them and said, well, did you see that? I didn't see that one coming. Sometimes it's a result of irresponsibility and that's the law of cause and effect. And sometimes it's to glorify God in ways that we don't understand. Just read sometime Matthew 9, excuse me, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Rust and moth destroy it there. Thieves can steal it. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And I think the first treasure we have in heaven is our perspective that is given from our understanding of God's sovereign care, his goodness, his providence over our very lives. A second lesson regards God and the loss of friends. This is complicated. God and the loss of friends. Job's loss of friends comes in two dimensions and two of the most painful categories or possibilities. First, he lost the lives of his friends, his workers. These were his co-workers. There wasn't a clear, as clear a division between workers and, and uh, bosses during this time. Sometimes I'm sure he would go out and spend the night in the field with them. These were his friends and they were killed. And as you read the rest of 30 plus chapters, of the book of Job, he also lost his friends in another way. The more that these friends tried to talk about his situation and try to comfort him, that's what they came to do, the more they eventually began to question him, doubt his theology, doubt his righteousness, and kept asking him, asking him this must have been something you did. Let's figure it out. What are you hiding? And Job kept saying, I, I know I've sinned, but I, I don't know what I would have done that would have solicited this from God. Boy, it's painful to lose friends over theology. It's painful when the people we know and love, instead of bolster our theology, they question and cause us to doubt it. But the loss of Job's friends did not dislodge his confidence and hope in his God. Thirdly, God and the loss of family. This is almost too hard for anyone to imagine. He lost his children, all 10 in the same moment. That likely included in-laws and probably included grandchildren. All in the same house. 
Almost too much to imagine. And yet, his loss of children did not dislodge his confidence and hope in his God. Fourth, God and the loss of health. Job's physical condition was, was hard for his friends to even look at. They couldn't even comment for a week. He would say later in the book that death would have been more welcome than his physical suffering. The physical pain he endured was excruciating. And yet the loss of his health did not dislodge his confidence and his hope in his God. Five, God and the loss of life. He ultimately has to ask the famous question posed by Shakespeare's Hamlet. Remember? To be, to live, or not to be, to die. To live or to die. To be or not to be. That, that is the question. In the midst of his suffering, that's what led Hamlet to ask that question. Job's pondering of this question put the answer in the hands of his sovereign God. It's where we began, Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. If children are gone, finances are gone, health is gone, friends are gone, and then he says, your life is complete, I still will hope in and trust him. And I love, though he slay me, he understood what Hannah understood, that life and death are with the Lord. Those are powerful lessons, but not nearly as powerful as this last one, which is the theme of the book of Job. God and the loss of perspective. The greatest danger to the Christian in times of loss is the loss of perspective. Really, perspective for a Christian is another word for for theology, theological perspective, godly interpretation of what's happening. The conversations Job would have with his friends for the next 30 plus chapters concerned Job's battle to maintain theological perspective and hold on to truth in the light of foolish speculation. You know, I've been in trying situations and well-meaning people just say things, if I could just say it, they're just not helpful. They're just not, not sound. I have every confidence that Job's friends wanted to help him. They were operating out of their misled this theology. But Job 19, verse 30, 23 says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in rock forever. As for me, I know that my redeemer, he lives. I love this. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. I fully believe that's the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Job could not identify by name there, but... He's the redeemer, and we know from the New Testament he will come and stand and rule and reign on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, Job said, yet from my flesh I shall see God. 
Even though I die in this flesh, this flesh, this person will be resurrected to see, to see God. Whom myself I shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. I can hardly take the thought that I will see God face to face, he says. Mr. Ryle asked us last week, are you ready? That's another way of saying, what's the condition of your theological perspective? How much of God's word extends in your worldview beyond the quiet time? How much of your interaction with God and your prayer with God interacts, extends into the relationship we walk with him moment by moment and hour by hour. I couldn't help but remember the second verse of Horatius Spafford's It Is Well With My Soul. In the light of Job, in the light of the, the troubles and the sufferings that we've seen in our own church body this week, listen to his words with fresh ears. Though Satan should buffet, pummel, punch, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Let this be the dominating thoughts of my heart. That Christ has regarded my helpless state and shed his own blood for my soul. You know what we have that Job didn't have? And whatever he had informed his theology to an amazing degree. We have the New Testament and we have the full revelation of the good news that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and died on a cruel Roman cross so we wouldn't have to paid the penalty of our sin, judgment forever apart from God, paid that justice and judgment for us and instead of us so we wouldn't have to shed his own blood for my soul. So when we experience loss, don't forget, no one understands loss better than your God. He knows about it personally. He lost while sending his only begotten son. He gave his son. He watched his son suffer unjustly and die unfairly for the sins of those who would believe. Do you have a theology? Do you have a category? Do you have, are you ready? Are you ready to interpret loss this year because you know what's true? True. 